Welcome to McKnight's Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information from industry leaders. I'm so pleased to have Bill Dombey, president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, as my guest again. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing fine, Liza. I hope all's well with you. Beautiful, sunny day here in Washington, D.C. That's terrific. Well, looking ahead, a 1% Medicare sequestration cut uh, is expected to kick in on April 1st. What kind of impact will that have on home health? It is going to be, as the sequestration is, uh, definitely a little pain uh, for home health uh, and all other Medicare providers who are going to be subject to it. You know, they've been free of it for nearly two years at this point. And so uh, there will be some adjustment, particularly in this age that we're facing of uh, inflation. You know, we've got higher gas prices for sure, but we probably have even a more material impact that being higher staffing costs with workforce shortage and, you know, what people are labeling the great resignation where people are leaving one job to take a higher paying job. So uh, 1% will be material. How do you think that home health is going to kind of compensate or handle this type of situation? Home health has had an incredible resilience. Not that you want to rely upon that all the time when you face rate cuts, but it has found ways, and and, and they vary. Uh, you know, they vary from uh, bringing some new efficiencies into operation. And one of the things which can you know maintains itself as an efficiency is the ability to reduce episode costs by combining in-person visits with telehealth visits. Uh, The virtual visits have created uh, efficiencies without a doubt. So I would anticipate that that will be part of the portfolio uh, that providers use to to maintain, you know, a semblance of operations within the added pressure of inflation and reduced reimbursement. Uh, there, There are clearly, you know, other steps that people sometimes take as well. Uh, Some may, you know, limit their service area uh, so that the drive time and the driving costs are down as well. So, you know, there there is a a laundry list, I suspect, that every home health AC has as to where they could dial costs down. How big or how significant has the impact of inflation and now these soaring gas prices been on agencies? You know, we're getting anecdotal reports, you know, we'll, we'll never have you know, the kind of rich data base that we would want to have on a real-time basis for this. You know, the, the thing that stands out optically is the rise in gas prices. Reality, though, from a cost of a per-visit perspective, you know, a $2 increase in a cost of a gallon of gas generally translates to about a dollar increase in the visit. Uh, costs for that home health agency. And in some cases, based on their compensation model, might not even mean that because they, you know, may be paying staff based upon miles driven using the IRS standard. Uh, I I can walk you through the math if you want, but it is pretty simple. You know, a $2 increase in gas with a car that travels 20 miles per gallon and an average length uh, distance traveled on a visit uh, to be 10 miles, uh, you know, works out to be that dollar cost per visit. And it's a dollar out of a $165 visit. Now, clearly, in rural areas, it's going to be many more miles traveled. Uh, in some cases, people travel by subways instead of by cars, so it won't be there. 
So, so the, the real impact that the inflation is having on, on providers are other elements of their costs, particularly the labor side of it. Labor for uh, home health is about you know, 83, 84% of the cost of a visit. And if labor goes up, then it's going to have a corresponding, you know, magnified impact on, on that overall cost per visit for the provider. So when it comes down to cost concerns, it's more labor than it is gas right now. I see. Do you think that in its proposed uh, final rule, um, CMS will sort of make an allowance for, for this um, and for these various hits? Are they going to provide some kind of reimbursement to make up for uh the, the rise in gas, the rise, you know, the inflationary issue? It's a very serious question you raise. CMS's approach is to develop a, a market basket index using the most recently available data that they have uh, coming from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And then they employ a forecasting tool that they've been using for quite a few years that takes a look at the trends and then forecasts what will be the cost increases that occur in 2023. So will they, they, they will be based upon 2022 experiences plus a forecast. So the question really is going to be, you know, it, 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 let, let's, let's make a, a, a wild assumption that inflation is in check in 2023. This forecasting tool may conclude then that the rise in costs in 23 will n- not be that high. And so that then what happens is the forecasted cost increases for 2022, you know, may not be reflective of actual cost increases. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a bit of science to this. There's, there's a number of assumptions that's made on it, but just from a, a timing perspective, cost increases in 2022 will have effect on 2023 rates, but the forecasting tool may either, you know, make those more accurate uh, in terms of what happens in 23 or less accurate, uh, depending upon you know, the ups and downs in inflation. So as a result of that, our game plan, you know, is that even in advance of issuance of the fi- uh, proposed rule that we would expect for home health in late June, early July, probably, is that we're going to HHS and going to the White House and, and suggesting that they make sure they employ methodologies that capture these cost increases, even perhaps for 2022, not just 2023. You know, there's some flexibility that CMS has to do that, but more often than not, it might take uh, some some degree of congressional support as well. So it's it's a bit of a dicey issue at this stage. Uh, and so we're not the only provider sector connected in on this. Every provider sector has higher nursing costs and higher other care costs. Home health and hospice, you know, are hit with the higher gas transportation cost kinds of things. So we're going to make our pitch and we're going to, you know, support it with, with good solid evidence on that. But there's, there's nothing built into the payment model that allows, uh, you know, something to be triggered in a mid-year very specifically. And the payment model approach for succeeding years, I think, has a bit of a gap in it to account for, you know, significant ups and downs, a roller coaster kind on inflation. 
Let's go back to your comment about the staffing shortage. What does it look like now as is compared to what it did a year or so ago? How is it changing the profile of the field and post-acute care in general? I, I think it's now, you know, kind of double what it once was. You know, that may not be mathematically sound, but, you know, in, in, in 2021, you saw the effect of COVID being the most pronounced aspect of the workforce shortage, you know, with people either out on quarantine or infected with COVID, you know, uh, as, as a driver of the workforce shortage. Today, it's a combination of people walking away from the workforce, retiring early, and, you know, among nurses in particular, in addition to the COVID, uh, you know, uh, hangover that's still there from uh, Omicron and, you know, future infections that might be there. So we're, we're seeing, you know, this being the high point of the crisis on workforce over the last several years happening today with potential forecasting of it getting worse as we move along. Uh, the, the remedial measures available are, are just simply not quick turns, particularly in, in, in the nursing side of it about the only available uh, approach to it is allow opening the gates of immigration of nurses from foreign countries. But those nurses in the Philippines and Ireland and other kinds of places, they're going to Europe and they're going to Asia and they're going to Australia. And some are coming into the United States at this stage. But, you know, it's, it's not going to be the volume that we need. So this is, this is the greatest concern and it's manifest in one way. Uh, and it's happening all across the country in all sectors of healthcare at home is home care companies are reducing their admissions to fit with the, you know, the, the workforce they have available. So people are not being able to get care they need. Right. Where do you see this going and how do you see it ending? Where are the solutions as you see them? Yeah. I mean, when we look at workforce, we find it to be multidimensional. You know, in, in that the, the root causes are more than just compensation, you know, uh, more than just the nature of the work. Uh, it includes just do we have the people to do the work, be they nurses, home care aides, or other discipline. It's pretty certain that we don't have the people in the United States right now to take on that kind of work. Uh, there are elements in the educational system that need to be revised you know, to be able to train people to go directly from nursing school to home care uh, rather than doing what one might call a residency in some other nursing aspect like a critical care unit at a hospital. Because practicing nursing in a home care setting may be top of the profession given that the people are there generally alone, independent of the kind of supports you might get in an institutional care setting. On the home care aid side, compensation certainly is a major factor in terms of that. But we also see the factor of such things as image and respect for both the nurses and the aides and maybe even the therapists on this. So when we look at it, you've got a lot of different causes for the workforce shortage, along with then a need to employ a wide variety of remedies that include you know, and, and this is not necessarily an order of priority, better 
payment from third-party payers so that you could bring better compensation to the workforce, uh, better uh, support for individuals to go into these professions, you know, from the schooling perspective, scholarships or grants or other kinds of financial supports to get there, better understanding of what that role might be if someone goes into these professions, because if we, if you have that better understanding, people will say, this is really a pretty special job. It really helps a lot of people, you know? And so you keep going across the board in terms of the various kinds of steps that can take it. Some involve money, some involve educational reform, some involve attitude or image reform as well. And we are heartened by the fact that Congress is focused a bit on this uh, in the most recent omnibus budget bill, you know, by providing some added supports to existing programs that might do such things as scholarships for nurses. At the same time, you know, it's not enough. Uh, the Build Back Better Act, which now seems to be spinning its wheels, has a billion dollars in it specifically designated for workforce improvement in home care services, you know, to develop strategic plans to improve workforce, in addition to $150 billion for the Medicaid Home and Community-Based Services Program with an eye towards improving workforce within the, the you know, context of that law. That's just spinning its wheels at this stage. You know, so you know, when, when we're looking at the, the workforce issues, we have to add one other factor that needs to be embraced, and that's technology. You know, virtual visits, you know, not supplanting uh, the uh, in-person visits in the home, but supplementing those visits with financial supports from programs like Medicare. The home care aid side, the personal care services side, Technology is less available to do with that. You know, I, I may enjoy science fiction, but you know, we don't have robotics yet for substituting technology, hands-on service through you know androids and robots, as we might from virtual visits to of a nurse to evaluate a patient's condition and take on some direct service. So complicated, no overnight solutions. Uh, crosses all healthcare sectors. Uh, and so we're calling on all the stakeholders in, in, in our part of healthcare to kind of join together to prioritize uh, and pull these resources together to make it all happen. Uh, this is not our first crisis of workforce, may not be our last, but this was probably the most serious in my professional lifetime. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Build Back Better, as you mentioned, um, is kind of is stagnating. How disappointed are you that it didn't come to pass uh, in, in the last year? And it has, not to be pessimistic, but has the moment passed? Will, will you get that back? Will you get that opportunity back? Uh, excellent question. You know, I think for, for the first time in my four decades doing advocacy around home care, I was attaching the word optimistic to, to my name. Uh, you know, when you know, we had a president who was advocating for improved supports for home community-based services. We had a Congress, even bipartisan supports emerging on this. And next thing you know, you know, we've hit a brick wall. It's unrelated to home and community-based service needs. 
know, it's got a lot of politics and some policy attached to it in terms of priorities. And most recently, you know, 39 members of the House of Representatives sent a letter to the White House saying relative to moving pieces of Build Back Better, we want climate change to be number one. Now, you know, the, uh, I said 39, I think we had 89 members uh, of the House signing on to this. So you, you've got, you know, a, a series of special needs that are out there, including home and community-based services. Am I disappointed? You know, I've also taken on battles. NAC has taken on battles that extend very, very long time. You just have to be persistent in, in, in this advocacy in order to succeed. And uh, I'll never forget one piece of legislation that ultimately was passed in 2020 as part of the CARES Act, and that was our 13-year effort to get authorizations for non-physician practitioners to uh, sign off on Medicare plans of treatment and Medicare face-to-face encounters, et cetera. 13 years it took to get a really sensible policy across the finish line. So I think the environment still favors support for Medicaid, HCBS, and other home care circumstances. Uh, the dollars you know, uh, involved you know, are going to be significant, so it's never going to have an easy trail on it. But I'll guarantee you, we haven't given up, and we haven't even given up on 2022's possibility of pieces of the balanced budget, the, the Build Back Better Act, uh, actually moving forward. So we've had conversations on the Hill which keep us working in that direction. Mm-hmm. What else are you anticipating? It's obviously very hard to predict, but coming out of Congress uh, in the next few months, choose home. Is that also in, in the cards, possibly? You know, the, the, the talk around Washington is that the omnibus budget bill is not going to be the last legislative vehicle for healthcare related action. Uh, and there's several possibilities between now and the end of the legislative year. And we believe Choose Home is exceptionally well positioned to make it onto whatever vehicle is there to ride. Uh, the, the biggest uh, you know, roadblock that we're working to overcome now is simply getting the Congressional Budget Office to evaluate whether Choose Home saves money or costs money. Uh, and if it costs money, what, what is it that we have to do to tweak it, to make it either budget neutral or saving money? That is in process now uh, with the omnibus budget bill uh, finalized. There's a window of opportunity for CBO to then focus on other matters. So that's what we're really ourselves uh, attending to at the moment. Uh, but uh, tonight, and tomorrow night, actually, I'll be spending some time with two of the senators that we have on board with this and getting some updates from them and obviously continuing to advocate uh, the Choose Home proposal. I mean, it is clearly a policy whose time has come. Uh, so I'm still cautiously optimistic about Choose Home. And to any reservation, the caution is based not on the policy, but simply the you know, the opportunity to move legislation forward in an election year, which is an, an intense election year, because the parties are fighting for control of both the House and the Senate. Another uh, upcoming issue is uh, possibly the end of the, the public health emergency. Um, it's supposed to uh, end on April 16th. 
The House recently passed, as as you alluded to, the omnibus bill, which extended the medic, the telehealth waivers five more months. You were pleased about that. Are there other pandemic provisions you're you're concerned about in terms of going away? You know, the the, the key provisions that home health care has you know gained on through the public health emergency waivers are tied to telehealth. You know, uh, particularly the face-to-facing physician encounter requirement uh, that has been done through virtual visits between physicians and now practitioners as well. Other aspects of of flexibility, we've already seen CMS take some steps with permanent uh, implementation of those in regulation. For example, uh, regulatory authorizations for some more flexibility around supervisory visits of home health aides. And then even, this goes back quite a ways uh, you know, in the pandemic period where they, you know, gave, uh, you know, permanent authorization to use telehealth services provided they're in the plan of treatment, albeit without any reimbursement effect, but still the ability to have that kind of flexibility in delivering care to individuals. So those three things, the telehealth piece relative to face-to-face, telehealth as it relates to home care services being directly delivered, and then the piece regarding some of the supervision and oversight elements, you know, we, we're pretty well set on uh, at least for, uh, you know, perhaps the remainder of this year. You know, the extension that was in the omnibus package relative to telehealth services is 151 days, otherwise five months at the close of the public health emergency. We fully expect that the public health emergency will be extended again. Uh, come, you know, the middle part of April and then into July, which could carry us through the end of the calendar year. No guarantees on that. There's actually some parties who are pushing to eliminate the public health emergency. Uh, but, you know, that we're still pretty deep into COVID right now. Uh, and the fallout of COVID continues to have effect. You know, so we expect to see uh, the PHE continued. Again, no guarantees on that. So in the event that the public health emergency ends, yeah, we would like to see a, a legislated extension of the use of telehealth services and with an anticipation that, you know, in the future, telehealth won't be the pure extension that's there because there's a, a lot to reexamine about telehealth, everything from, you know, how you authorize it, how much is it paid for, when you use it, and, and, and so on. Uh, and we have a small part of that, you know, there's a much bigger part of telehealth uh, that goes into physician services and therapist services and the like. So complex issue, uh, caution is happening in Congress right now. But I think that there the, the, the will remain very serious discussions between now uh, and the end of this extension uh, regarding some permanent aspects of telehealth. Very good. Uh, last year in May, and this will be my last question for you. Last year in May, um, you declared 2021 was the year of healthcare at home. And as we've talked about, there's been a lot of change. Um, some some disappointments, things didn't really go the way of home health and home care. Do you have a prediction yet for 2022 that you could kind of uh, encapsulate in a phrase or in, in some kind of moniker about what 2022 is? I think 2022 is the 
stage of implementation of that improved status of healthcare at home, meaning you'll see more and more practitioners and services provided in the home setting uh, in terms of reality. It was one thing for innovations to come out in 20 and 21 relative to care in the home as concepts, uh, and now we're moving into the rubber hits the road stage. And there, despite the setbacks that we've had from, you know, hoped for legislative action and even regulatory action, there remains significant flexibility within the healthcare system to put these innovations into practice, particularly around managed care programs, both Medicare Advantage and and commercial plans, along with even Medicaid managed care services. So we would anticipate, you know, that rubber hitting the road stage of innovation uh, taking off in 2022 and obviously continuing thereafter. Uh, But still, there's a lot of work to be done to fix elements of traditional Medicare, you know, and to deal also with the workforce shortages because, you know, the innovations in delivering care at home take workforce to actually have them happen. And so, you know, we, we, we have to bring that workforce in, into, into the systems to make the reality that we are seeking relative to that expansion of home care opportunities. But again, my, my, my little tagline would be 22 is the rubber hits the road time in terms of implementation of these, whether it's hospital at home or flexibilities that manage care on nursing home at home, or even the continuing partnership between technology and in-person services. Very good. Well, on that note, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. Bill Dombey, president of NAC. Thank you, Liza. Thanks for listening to McKnight's Newsmakers podcast. We hope you'll join us again.